another Crossover Chronicles podcast. I'm John Cannon, and my guest today is Brent Berry, longtime NBA player, slam dunk champion, uh, three-point shooter before they really realized how important three-point shooting was, uh, and currently analyst for uh, TNT and NBA TV. And uh, Brent, first I want to apologize for not, I, I don't have NBA TV. My cable operator doesn't even offer it, so I haven't seen any of your work there. Uh, so I don't know well, what you've fun, been saying about these various funny things. Funny thing, John, is neither do I at home, so don't worry about it. <laughs> We're both in the <laughs> same boat. <laughs> the frustrating thing about that is that I've got NBA League Pass, but any game on NBA TV, they won't show on League Pass. And I can't yeah, get it. I'm trying to so work. I can't I, see those games. I, I keep hearing all of the uh, – I'm, I'm keeping in tune with all the problems that people have between, first of all, having league pass and trying to operate the app is really a, a thorn in my side. And so underneath the scenes, behind the scenes, uh, I'm trying to do my best to find out the root of these problems and to make things easier for all of us who really enjoy watching hoops and want access and want it to be done easily. So I'm trying my I best to appease some no of idea. your problems. I had no idea that you're my guy working on, on my app. So next time you talk to them, I noticed a new thing last night on the on the app on my phone, which was an ad that because there's really not that much space on the phone anyway for what they're trying to do. When you put an ad like yeah. right above the play-by-play, now you're down to about two plays in the play-by-play that you can see at one time. <laughs> Yeah, John, I'm hearing you. I don't know what okay. I can do about the ad space. It's probably that's uh, way above my pay grade. I know that for sure. <laughs> Just <laughs> but, tell them, uh, make the team logos smaller. We we know yeah. who the teams are. We know what their I'm logos look like. I'm with you. I'd like to see okay. some of the stats boards cleaned up. I mean, there's a lot of aesthetic things that I think could be a lot more pleasing. So I'm with you. We'll we'll team right. up and we'll we'll get things streamlined so that 2016-17 uh, is a little better experience. Well, I have one more uh, TV-related question before we talk about the uh, the current finals. And um, I, I just want to tell the listeners what I told you when we started. This is not going to be all about what's happening in the finals right now because, uh, you know, if you're listening to this in a month, uh, don't worry. There's going to be stuff here that you're going to want to listen to. It's not all going to be about, you know, what whether the Warriors are going to rebound against the, the Thunder. Uh, but my other TV question for you is, what is it like for a guy who obviously played in so many games – and has been at so many games, courtside as an analyst, or even just at the game that it interests you, to to watch games on television and then have to have an opinion about them. Do you find that that you get enough information from the game on TV to, to feel comfortable going on and, and giving an opinion about what happened? Well, I kind of take the the job that I'm asked to do, and and you know. Again, I'm employed by Turner to go to a game and analyze what it is that's happening based on my experiences as a player. And so the one unique part about that is through my set of eyes, I see the game a certain way. And so when you have the opportunity to listen to multiple broadcasters, whether that's the play-by-play or the analyst that happens to be doing the game for whatever sport it is, uh, there's a certain vantage point and a certain way that um, how that player sees the game or sees things developing or the general feel of what it is that he's experiencing within the arena and the confines of the game that you try to communicate to the viewer. And so I I just like talking hoops, John, to be honest with you. And when I'm out 
to do a game, I try to talk like I'd be talking to you or my good buddies about how a team is playing and what's going on. Although I do have some ammunition for those games where I've, I've done a little deep dive into some of the statistics and some of the things that guys have been doing throughout the course of, of their year, um, the last few games, some of the tendencies from the coaching staff, and just be as prepared as possible to not get in the way of what the game is supposed to be doing and representing on its own accord. Okay, then the season gets to a point where you're now working for NBA TV. And are you at the game for NBA TV? No, or are for, you for watching it in Atlanta? My, my job for Turner is during most of the year, uh, a good 75% of the year for me consists of being in Atlanta and uh, being at the studios on Sundays and Mondays for NBA TV broadcasts where we're covering on those nights every single game that's going on around the league and any uh, storylines that maybe need to be uh, dissected or talked about during our seven or eight hours of coverage on any given night. And then once the playoffs start to roll around, John, and actually during the regular season this year, uh, I was out calling games for TNT on Thursday nights and then had the opportunity to do the playoffs over the last couple of years. So that gets a deep dive into a series and um, talking to coaches and being on site and doing some of the things that will allow you to be part of the game in a much different way. Right. It's, it is tough when you're, when you're watching it on TV. Um, and, and one of the things that crosses my mind is, is, is the, the replay selections. And I, I noticed that last night, which was game four in the spur in the thunder and, and warriors uh, series for reference point, uh, it seemed that they went back to actually showing some foul calls on replay. But the first three games in that series, they were hardly showing any foul calls on replay. They would take a, a foul call opportunity to show the most recent really nice play. And right. it was super slow-mo, super close-up shot of a jumper or a layup. And, and we never got to see, was that really a foul? And right. it was well, driving me crazy. A lot of those uh, decisions are made by whoever it is that on any given game might be the director of that broadcast. And then they're choosing what it is in those spare moments of time in between plays, what it is that they want to go back to. And a lot of times I really think, John, obviously the agenda for uh, a broadcast is to celebrate great plays um, and not go back and try to put the referees in a bad light even though fans want to see sometimes the contact, what it is that happened and dive into that sort of thing. And especially in the playoffs, especially when it starts to get physical, um, those decisions are made in the truck. And so it, it's, right. it's hard to sit there, I guess, courtside as, as an analyst at that point, And to talk about a foul while a, a, a Russell Westbrook fast break dunk is happening on the screen and saying, Hey, on the other end, uh, you know, maybe that was an illegal screen by Andrew Bogut. We're, we're not seeing that, so we're not going to really talk about that. It doesn't really uh, line up for what it is you're doing on the television side of things. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of changes the changes the narrative. It changes the storyline, which I think with the NBA and the and the two minute report and and all the stuff that that happened early in these playoffs, I, I think it's just fine with them to to get the officials out of the crosshairs um, at least for for a little bit. Yeah, I think the so, league. I think not only the officials, John, but the league appreciates when when television doesn't do that, so that there's yeah. just not disparaging remarks about uh, what it is that's going on with the refereeing and and how things are are being uh, viewed, called, and and in some cases not called. <laughs> 
Right. Uh, so we have a situation here with with uh, four teams that are they're left, and three of these teams in the past two years have fired a successful coach and replaced them with another coach. And I, I find it very interesting that, that here we have Cleveland, we have uh, Oklahoma Golden. City, yep, and, and of course the Warriors. State. Yep. Yep. Um, and is this something? And then there were a bunch of coaching changes this year with, again, some successful teams. Indiana, certainly a successful team. Um, do you think that, that what has always been a, a low job security job has gotten to be more of a low job security job in the last couple of years? Yeah, it's been interesting. Let, let me add to this, John, as well, with the Toronto Raptors and Dwayne Casey, the guy has had uh, continuous seasons here of success where he's built on the previous year's win total and is sort was in a position um, where he still doesn't have a contract extension. So not only are you talking about new coaches taking their teams to new heights, you're talking about a coach that's been there that can't get some sort of solidarity or at least some stability with a contract extension as the playoffs are happening and Toronto's going as far as they've, they've ever gone before. So the, the idea, I guess, is that what we've seen, and I think a, a lot of it is directly correlated to over the past seven or eight years, how many teams have sold and the new ownerships uh, and new ownership groups that have taken over uh, a lot of these franchises and a lot of the, the owners that have taken over are either conglomerates, a group of conglomerates or groups of people, or they're much younger personnel um, and are making some decisions about how it is they want their team to either play or, the, or a changing of the guard that they feel is necessary for them to have ownership, not just of the team, but how the team is going to be presented on the floor with the staff. It's very interesting to always hear coaches around the league um, who react to when it is that a coach is fired. And most of the time it's, it's Jeff Van Gundy that's referring to the fact that the team's just not committing to one coach who is stable, that can stay there, build a program up, suffer through seasons where they lose and then build up a winning program and seeing those, seeing that team and those players through to the end is a bit frustrating as a coaching staff, especially when we talk so much about the culture of a team. So the idea about coaching in the NBA, you've got to have some incredibly thick skin, not only when you're with a team and your team's going through the regular season and a lot of people are questioning every decision you're making with all the media outlets that are out there, not just your local fish wrap, but you know, all the bloggers and People who want to tweet about the team and everybody's got. To hey, hey, wait a minute. Hey, 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 no, wait no, a minute. Not, not, You're not kind a, of close to home there. No, no, not a bad thing. <laughs> not, not a bad. You know, it's it's entertaining and it it's just some of the noise you have to uh, block out. And some people have some very intelligent conversations about basketball. I'm not judging it either way. But uh, the fact of the matter is, the the coaching job and the coaching profession is a very difficult one. And uh, you always hope, as a coach, I think, to get into a situation where like-minded people continue to be consistent with what it is they want to build and they have the opportunity to see those things through. Well, you are, have an interesting perspective on that because you played for one, two, three, four, five, six teams yep. in your NBA career. Great coaches and, too. 
Uh, and and you, well, tell me about obviously you played for Pop in San Antonio. Who was your coach in Seattle? Well, let me go through it. Well, Clipper years okay. was was Bill Fitch, and uh, okay. you know Bill Fitch has won and lost a lot of basketball games. Had some incredible uh, teams that he coached with the Houston Rockets and the Boston Celtics, and some incredible players that he came into contact with. And so in the first couple of years, it was an interesting experience to have really an old school coach in that manner. Uh, the way that he controlled the locker room, the way and style he played, the type of communication he had for his team. Uh, I then was in Miami for a cup of coffee with Coach Riley, so I spent a couple months there at least getting into uh, what what uh, the culture in Miami has been and continues to be because at that time Eric Spolster was a film guy and uh, Eric and I spent a lot of time together while I was playing in the film room talking about the offensive and defensive schemes. I should probably reverse that order if I was talking about the Heat. Coach Riley would be mad right. if I didn't say defense first and then the offensive <laughs> side of things. Um, and then I was with uh, the incredibly unique experience to be in Chicago for Tim Floyd and him coming in after it was that the Bulls had had their long run and Jerry Krause finally getting his guy in and Tim Floyd coming from Iowa State to coach the Chicago Bulls in the lockout season. I lasted just that one year uh, in Chicago after signing my contract there and then played the rest of that contract out in Seattle under Paul Westfall and then Nate McMillan. Um, so Nate being back in the fold in Indiana is an interesting uh, thing moving forward for the Pacers for next year. And then uh, four years with Pop and one year with Rick Adelman. So lots of uh, very successful coaches in the league and lots of guys who've done it in very different ways that I think um, for, my, for, for me provides a great perspective on how you communicate, who responds to what kind of communication, and then, of course, diving deeper into all the, the strategies and philosophies about the game and the way it should be played. Um, lots of fun stuff to think about. And also continuity. I mean, that's because that's what we're talking about with these coaching changes and these new, you know, venture capitalists that that if a guy doesn't get it done in two or three years, he wants to get a different guy who's going to bring in a different system. And even the players that are still there, if there are any, are going to now have to learn a completely new system. They're not going to be comfortable in it for two years. And and you got to see through you know five years in in or, or four years in San Antonio and um and and with a couple of years with Fitch and and to see part of Riley's thing which was obviously not going to change anytime soon right uh, that uh, that how important that continuity was and then of course the Floyd was an interruption in continuity right well that was a that there was so much disruption going on within the Bulls franchise that it reached its peak with Michael coming back and winning the championships and Phil Jackson moving on. The, the one fascinating part about that year in Chicago with all that changeover and knowing that it was time for Chicago to you know start over um, and to start really at ground zero with, uh, with, with Michael being gone and Phil being gone was the fact that Tex Winter and Frank Hamblin and Bill Cartwright stayed back for that year. So it was interesting for me, the opportunity not only just to uh, see Tim Floyd deal with the, the big jump from college to the pro game and being in Chicago and all the all the uh, things that were going around and swirling around the franchise. I got a great uh, experience over the course of that five months to talk with uh, Tex Winter and to talk with Frank Hamlin and to discuss the triangle offense and to go through some, some of the things that Chicago did for years and years and be a student of what it was that they were about. 
um, during the years they were winning championships. And so I tried to absorb as much of, of that as I could with the season, obviously going to be a very, very difficult one with the talent level that was there and, and knowing we were playing more for uh, draft positioning than anything else. And you really shot the heck out of the three-pointer there. I mean, you shot 172 that year in 37 games. Yeah, um, yeah that was a bad – I had a really bad shooting – I had a really bad year. Okay, I was going to leave the percentage part out. I well, was just going to say you it, shot a lot of them. Yeah, no, it was and – then, And then the next few years, you, you know, when you went to Seattle – you shot a lot of them, but your percentage was much better. Well, if we went and played a men's league game and I had you play with me to get open shots or my neighbor to get open shots, you might tell the difference between the two. And so that yeah. year in Chicago was basically playing with a, you know, a few neighbors down the street trying to find some offense and continuity in the triangle, which is what we ran for a roster that was made up to, uh, I, how do I say it? Uh, uh, with some graciousness to get a good draft choice. So uh, a very, a very <laughs> difficult year to operate, yeah, to operate yeah. uh, with the type of efficiency that I really, uh, that I like to play with. So what was playing for Westfall? Like I, I covered his teams in, in Phoenix. Well, I think Paul Westfall, just my, my opinion of, of Paul being in Seattle is he's one of the greatest offensive minds that I've been around especially with regards to the NBA. If you go back to look at some of those years in Phoenix and the way that they operated on the offensive end and the way that he got uh, Charles Barkley and Kevin Johnson involved in the offense, which then bled over to um, incredible opportunities for the rest of that basketball team based on the hard work that the star players were doing. I think Paul has a a mad genius to him about uh, the offensive end of the floor and how to create opportunities for guys and use – the, the tremendous skill set of the best guys on the team to make it a lot easier for the other guys to be efficient in what it is that they're doing. And uh, I really enjoyed and still talk with Coach Westfall actually quite a bit. Even after his uh, release from the Nets this year, he made a road trip through San Antonio and we got a chance to sit down and sort of talk through his experience there. But I really enjoyed the relationship that I've, I've had with Paul Westfall, not only as player coach, but certainly becoming a good friend through the years. So I'm going to ask you about the three-point shot, you know, because you were a, a, um, a, a part of it and a purveyor of it when when it wasn't nearly the, the kind of, of weapon it's been recognized to be now. Do you, uh, do you look at it? Did you look at it then and say, you know, this is underutilized. This, yeah. this, this weapon should be used more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always thought it was uh, – you know, it was something that I prided myself on. I worked uh, very hard to become a very, very uh, efficient shooter with three-pointers uh, and uh, knew how much it could open up the game. Um, I, I'm still a big fan of it. I'm not a, I'm not a huge fan of everybody shooting it, but I am definitely a fan of uh, the way that coaches can get creative to get guys opportunities to fire off from the three-point line. And the one thing that uh, – has really transitioned over the course of the last four or five years is exactly what you're talking about, John, with regards to teams really seeking it out as option one. Most of the years that that I was playing, it was a part of the offense, but it was predicated on low post, uh, a low post presence that was drawing a double team. And in some cases, a triple team with teams being in some kind of half court rotating defense 
after a, a trap and then scrambling out. And if you had a couple of shooters on your team, that scramble out became a lot more difficult because you'd have to extend your defense out to the three-point line. Nowadays, it's sort of like wide pin downs coming off and first pass available open three-pointers or three-on-twos in transition, the new look fast break uh, for, for like teams, the Rockets and the Warriors, where you come down three-on-two. You're not filling the lanes anymore. You're, you're filling zones at the three-point line to seek out that shot. It would have been really a lot of fun to, to, to play that way, but it uh, really wasn't seen the same uh, during the during most of the time that I was I was playing. Well, it could have been worse. You could have played, you know, before there was a three point line, like your like your old man. Yeah, I um, think it. Yeah, yeah, I think he only got a couple of touches. Uh, yeah, in Houston, late in his career. Line. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of scores throughout the league history that would have benefited from the three point line and might have moved that up that all time list for sure. There's been some great marksmen that didn't benefit from uh, from the line being part of their career. I want to ask you a little more about about him and 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 really more about not him. Um, and I'll explain what I mean. There there are a lot of players whose dads played in the NBA, and obviously the two famous warriors right now, Clay Thompson and, and Steph Curry. And and so I think when people think Brent Barry and and, and your brothers, um, they think that it was like that. It was like it, like it was for Steph Curry, like it was for for Clay Thompson, but. But it really wasn't because your your folks had split up and uh, you were living with your mom in the East Bay of, right. uh, of North California and and so you didn't go to games with you. Know, there's all these pictures of Steph Curry on his on his dad's bench in Charlotte, his dad's bench in Toronto. Um, you, you didn't have that. And and you ever wonder how the heck you, you got to the NBA and and your brothers did too with um you know with 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 the, the gene pool obviously was kind to you. But the rest of it, you really had to do on your own. Yeah, I kind of know how I got there. I mean, I pretty I busted my hump in the practice gym and kept working hard. And yeah, I didn't have that same uh, that same experience that uh, that Clay and Steph, obviously because of uh, personal reasons, that they got to enjoy being around the game. I, I was a ball boy for the Warriors when I was four and five years old, and uh, I remember times being in the locker room, and I remember given my blanket to Clifford Ray when I was seven years old because my parents thought I, I was too old to carry around the blanket like Linus anymore. So I gave it to Clifford Ray and he still has it. And so I do have memories oh, from an early, from an early childhood about being around the game and being around the gym. But uh, yeah, by the time I was eight, nine years old, I was uh, living with my mom and I was uh, on, on basically on my own and with my brothers. And at that point there we were, doing it for the love of the game and, and continuing to, to work and try and improve. And uh, that was my experience. And uh, like I said, I put, I put a lot of, a lot of hours into the gym and a lot of dedication and hard work into it and, and uh, ended up uh, getting the first uh, best job out of college I could think of. You were 24. I'm seeing here when, when you were a rookie in the NBA, that sounds old to me. No, nah, I don't think I was uh, that old. That okay, that's what the basketball reference has. Um, well, 95, 96 is what they have, and you were born in 71, right? 23, so, I think it was 20, 22 when I got drafted, so 22 and then 20, turning 23 in my first year. I don't know. Right, 24 well, sounds like I should have been on a mission. I know. I, quite that I know. Old. That's what I'm thinking. But I did have five years. In... I did spend five years of college. I redshirted my first year. You redshirted a year? And okay. so I was a little bit older as a rookie. Um, coming into the league, but I don't 
24, I don't know that that's exactly right. Let me go back. Maybe a year well, year younger. We'll we'll uh we'll give we'll give you a year. Okay, um, I'll take it. Okay, yeah, I, I figured you would. Now let me circle around to to talking about um, this current playoff system, a thing that we've got going on right now, and and uh, a remarkable uh, transformation uh, by the Oklahoma City Thunder that is either responsible for or happening concurrently with a, a, a transformation by the Golden State Warriors. Um, and the fact that previously we had kind of a transformation by the San Antonio Spurs playing against the Thunder makes me kind of think that it, it may be the Thunder. It may not be yeah, exactly. uh, the team that they're playing. Um, I, I really felt after that San Antonio series, we didn't really know yet about Oklahoma City. But uh, the more that we see them just getting better every game. H- have you seen a team catch fire like this late in a, in a season? Well, I think the thing that people are, are missing while these playoffs are going on, John, is look back at what Oklahoma City represented uh, themselves to be throughout the regular season. They were the second best offense in the league behind Golden State. And this is why a lot of people who know what they're they're talking about um, kept mentioning the fact that Oklahoma City is the most scary team in the Western Conference and more than likely in the playoffs because of what they represent on the offensive end of the floor. They were just behind Golden State, who won a you know who won their 73 games, and all they had to do was at some point defensively figure out how it was that they were going to help the helper and take some pride in that end of the floor because of their length, athleticism, and scoring prowess. They were going to be a team that was difficult to take out. Now a lot of teams were relying on them not having that kind of discipline, and they showed plenty of those signs during the regular season. We talk about the meltdowns in the fourth quarter and about some of the play sets and about how the execution on the offense didn't include some players like Abaca at times and what's Cantor's role and how much of a liability on the defensive end he'd be on and on and on. Well, the fact of the matter is everybody knew that still because of what they represented offensively, they were dangerous. And so I think that that's the most impressive part about how they've turned themselves on in the playoffs. Most of that, in my opinion, has to do with getting through San Antonio, who is the terminator of the NBA. They're like a robot who you just don't think has a weakness, and they just keep coming at you and coming at you. And I think after they got beat down in game one and came back to win the series, their confidence was so high about whoever it was that they were playing, even past Golden State, that they had unlocked something as to what it, what, it, what it was they needed to do defensively that they could be a big-time problem playoffs, and they've proven that out. Well, defensively and and mentally. I mean, that was the right. other place that San Antonio that, that could count on Oklahoma City failing was in the mental part of the game. Right. And and when you're going up against a San Antonio or a Golden State and you make a mistake, like the, the game, you know, the famous game the Warriors came back from in February, you know, the excuse me, Oklahoma City just made mistake after mistake in, in the fourth quarter of that game. Right. And, you know, fouling, leading by three, fouling Clay Thompson going for a layup, giving him, a, giving him an and one to tie the score. I mean, stuff like that. And, and they just have eliminated that. Right, which is fascinating. They also have not put themselves really in those dire situations. I know if people listen to it now, they'll re- remember it. And if they listen to this podcast later, they might not. But they've, they've beat teams to the point where you know, a 10 or 12 point lead in the fourth quarter, as opposed to playing 
eight minutes of the fourth quarter in a possession game where it's one or two possessions away from the lead shifting sides ends up becoming a lot less stressful for your basketball team. The other part about that is you know, Billy Donovan really figuring out some things um, with regards to how to use some of his players that ended up being incredibly beneficial. All of a sudden, you know, the Cantor is used in the series prior with uh, San Antonio where he kept Cantor and Adams out there and was a big advantage literally to have those two on the floor. And in the series against Golden State, finding success with Robertson playing the power forward position. I mean, I know KD's out on the floor and people want to pigeon him as the foreman, but really it's, it's Robertson as the foreman setting screens and being active and finding production from him. So you know, a lot of things have gone right. A lot of confidence has been built with Oklahoma City and uh, through their steps and progression in the playoffs. And here they are, um, you know, doing some damage. It's tempting for me um, as a guy who's watched the Warriors for, you know, well, all my life, but really, really closely these last couple of years. Uh, to to mention how you know Steph just not being Steph, right? And and how that sweat spot in Houston, that when he hit that sweat spot, the season changed, and we didn't really know it yet. We knew you know we knew things were going to be different for a while, but we didn't know long term what. And then the you know the MRI came back. Oh, it's good. He should be back in a couple of weeks. And so I'm trying not to do what people did to the Warriors last year, which was discount what they accomplished because the teams that they were playing were having injury challenges. Um, so, but, but I, I want to at least explore the idea that, that with a healthy Steph Curry, a normal Steph Curry, he would have hit some of those three pointers that would have made these games closer, that would have increased the pressure on players like Roberson um, and and other players who aren't aren't used to that limelight, and even Westbrook, who you know when things are tight, he plays differently than when you know when yeah. things are loose. Yeah, and I, I don't really subscribe to that because uh, the the idea is that what, what Oklahoma City has done to the mentality of the Golden State Warriors, the entirety of the team and the character of the team, has to be something that you have to stand up and take notice of, and if Steph was not quite a hundred percent or, you know, never regained quite uh, the form that we're accustomed to, to seeing from him in terms of dominating the game or some of his movements on the floor, Oklahoma city has also taken away what Draymond green has represented over the past couple of years to be a terror on both ends of the floor. He is, he became, I mean, he had two of the worst games of his entire career against Oklahoma city. Right. Now, is that, is that a, is that direct correlation to Steph not being able to do what he does? I absolutely agree with that because Steph and Clay have to be doing things in order for Draymond Green to be at his uh, at his right. most beneficial for the system. Right. I get that, but how how Oklahoma City has been able to navigate the series and take them both out of their games, respectively, has to be something you stand up and take notice of with regards to the construct of the Oklahoma city team. And that has to do with that length athleticism and incredible confidence that they, that they found against San Antonio. Yeah. Length and athleticism mm. just, 
just huge. I mean, the, the Warriors have succeeded by going small against people, and Oklahoma City's small is bigger than, than the Warriors' small, but it's as quick. I mean, it's like, I don't know how the Warriors beat them three times during the season. <laughs> you know, yeah. how did, well, except, like I said, yeah. made the mental mistakes yeah. close in the game. They had Oklahoma City had big leads, I think, in all three games. But they just allowed the Warriors to get back into it. And the Warriors had the confidence then, Brent, that, that that there was no deficit, especially in the third quarter, early fourth quarter. There was no deficit that they could not Stupid. overcome. Yeah, and now it's like they get six, eight points. It's like, that's it. Yeah, it feels like leads, uh, leads of eight feel insurmountable for, for the Golden State Warriors. It's just such an eerie thing to have watched Golden State uh, in games three and four be as discombobulated and to be as unable to retaliate against Oklahoma City that we've grown accustomed to. It's the fact that the, and it's been the starting group and it's been at times the lineup of death that's been out there that everybody said there's no way, uh, for people to figure out what this lineup represents and nobody can match up with it. So to have all of those things at once topple over like, uh, Warrior Jenga and every piece is out on the floor. And then have to pick up the pieces and try to win three games against Oklahoma City. It's really been uh, a fascinating turn of events. Well, you just gave me the, the the little blurb that I'm going to use to promote this podcast. Warrior Jenga. Warrior Jenga it is yeah. brilliant. It is brilliant. Um, okay, so now I have to say that what sounds familiar to me, and I'm 10 years older than you. So when the Warriors won the championship in '75, which was a big surprise to everyone. They were, it was a big upset in the mm-hmm. finals. Yep. Um, and then in the next year, they, they changed some personnel, which this team really didn't. They got rid of Butch Beard, and they brought in Gus Williams, and they brought in Robert Parrish. You forget Robert Parrish was on that team. That's right. Um, and and they, they won 59 games instead of 48. They improved their win total by 11. They had three guys on the All-Star team just like this year. And, and they went into the playoffs, and they had the home court throughout – and they lost to a, I think it was like a 42-win Phoenix Suns team at home, Game Seven. And I'll tell you that the last two games, Game Three, Game Four, have really reminded me of that, of watching a team and saying, "Who are these guys? What is going on? Where, where's the team I've been watching for two years?" Yeah, and the confidence is—it's—it's it's such a slippery slope when it is that you. You know, you're kind of looking around about, you know, how are we going to get out of this and who's going to do what? I remember a very, you know, the only experience I can recall is my uh, time 2005 when the Spurs were playing Detroit. We were in Detroit after game four. We had we had crushed the Pistons in games one and two. And then we went to Auburn Hills and got destroyed uh, in a way that kind of crumbled not only us, uh in terms of tactics, but emotionally through the first four games. So it's all tied up. And at that time it's two, three, two. So we have to play another game in Detroit. And I, at that time, remember uh, being in a team meeting with, with the pop and, and all of us sitting there where we really didn't have any answer. We really were as shaken as a team as I, as I'd ever seen throughout the course of that season and throughout the course of my four years, quite frankly, that moment sticks out to me uh, as a team that didn't know exactly what to do uh, for the next game and where the answers were going to come from. We ended up uh, seeing Robert Ory drill a huge three on an out-of-bounds play with Rasheed Wallace making a, 
a bit of a blunder late in the game that uh, propelled us to win that game. And uh, we were as, as shocked as maybe the Pistons fans were that, that we had recovered from whatever that was. And I feel like the Warriors are kind of in that state. Obviously, they're traveling back to play at home. But the way that they lost those last two games, there's just much more to it than, hey, we've got to do this and that and the other. There's an emotional recovery that Golden State is going to have to try to get through here in this game along with their execution um, that's going to be a big part of, of them succeeding in game five um, and ultimately whatever else the rest of the season represents. Right. Absolutely. You know, they, when they were down two one, people kept saying, Oh, they've been down two one before. Yeah. Not, like, not like this. And it, there's a great, <laughs> there's a great thing, John. Um, if, if you, you know, sometimes you get into these ruts, uh, especially playoff time when you don't get a chance, like as men, things happen in our lives where we got to go in a cave and we kind of, you know, we can sit in there as long as we want. And then we come out when we're, we're ready to face the world again, the playoffs, they don't allow you to do that as a collective group. And so sometimes you can't solve a problem with the same level of thinking that created the problems. You have to do something else. And this is where maybe, you know, Steve Kerr and his coaching staff, as they've alluded to some of the changes that they made tactically in those past situations, you know, maybe there's something that they can do to help the team recover emotionally before it is that they play that, that next game. The the plane ride is really all they've got, really. Yeah. I mean, without media, without everyone else around, they've got the plane ride. And, yeah. and they, they had that last night, and we'll see what they come up with. Well, I was covering the Suns when they blew a 3-1 lead to the defending champion Houston Rockets with home games. Uh, you know, the, the Suns had home games 5-7 and seven, and managed to lose – three in a row to the Rockets. So I, I know it can be done, uh, but like you said, can they repair the emotional damage? And and it will be very interesting to, to see what happens. Brent, I've taken more of your time than, than I thought. I'd like to, I'm going to let you go because I'd like to have you on again. So I don't want to <laughs> no overuse you. Um, I really appreciate your, your work and your schedule around to, to make this happen. And uh, your insight is, is great. And you're, you're on a great path, I think, to, to do, to do broadcasting because you, you understand the game in a, in a, in a special way. And again, I think, I think that's, that's the gene pool too. Your, your dad was intuitive about basketball in a way that very, very few people uh, ever will be. Um, it was an absolute uh, pleasure to watch him play when I was a kid. Um, and I, I, I wish a lot of things had been different about the rest of his, his life. Um, including, you know, just, just wish he'd been more at peace with himself. Yeah, and, you know what, John, it, I'm I'm with you, and I hope at some point that uh, he gets there to to atone for some of those things. I appreciate you saying that. The other part about it is, uh, I'm going to go check my birth certificate to see if I actually was 24 my rookie year. I'm just not believing that. I'm, I'm going well, to make some phone calls and look at basketball <laughs> reference does not. You know, they don't miss very often. Well, I'm going to look at your uh, very Yinkadare situation type thing I got going on here. So I'm going to I'm going to dive into me, this. They're telling me you're 44 and 146 days today. Well, that that, so that, that sounds about right. <laughs> I'm, th- I'm thinking that they've got it right, and yeah. I, I'm <laughs> go check. I'm gonna go check it out. Well, you tell those TNT guys to show replays of the fouls, please, because we're all trying to see what's going on in these games and get that ad off my app. All right, those are your two jobs. You got it, John. Checklist has been made. Okay. All right, thanks, all right. Brent. Bye, bye.